As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of man, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head, from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men. Which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. As I mentioned earlier, my name is Robert Jackson. I'm one of the pastoral interns here, and it's my pleasure and honor to be with you this morning and share with you from the Word of God. Um, as you heard read earlier from the King James, today we will be in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. If you have your Bibles with you, I highly recommend that you would take them out and uh, have them in front of you as a reference, uh, particularly because it's a little bit of a different tra- translation, and so there's a couple of words that I do want to highlight in there. Also, I would love it if you would hold me accountable to sharing with you the things that are in that text this morning. While you're turning there, I'll go ahead and give you the bottom line historical context that you need in order to understand what Paul's getting at in our passage. The church in Colossae was a new church. It was planted recently, and it was not planted by Paul. Rather, it was planted by one of his disciples named Epaphras. So Paul heard about this church plant, and he was understandably both very excited And also maybe a little bit concerned because he didn't plant it himself. It was planted by a disciple. And so he wrote the letter of Colossians to them in an attempt to give them a firm foundation in the gospel. He wanted to do this for two reasons. To protect them, firstly, against the philosophy of the day that was popular among Greek philosophers. Um, It's a word that in your Bibles is asceticism. In the King James Version, it's what said neglect to the body. Essentially, it was a teaching that earthly pleasure is bad and it should be avoided at all costs. So Paul wanted to equip the church to handle this uh, particular strain of philosophy as well as, especially, 
the motivation that the Greek philosophers were using to spread their teaching. And the motivation that the Greek philosophers were using is something that we're all still very familiar with today, and it's called shame. So Paul wanted them to be both equipped to deal with the philosophy and the motivation. Shame, as I read the text, is the result of being weighed or measured against the desires of someone that you value and being found wanting. So Paul wanted them to be able to respond to this feeling of shame. And the thing that makes shame such an effective motivator is that, as we're going to see today, it's a universal human experience. We all know what it's like to know the desires of people that we value and to want so badly to live up to them and still to fall short. And I would like for us to ask this morning, because we all have shame, what do we do with it? What do you do with your shame? The asceticism that Paul referenced in our passage is an attempt to mitigate the universal problem of shame by essentially having everyone get together in a community and everybody that you value agrees, we're all going to agree to uh, desire less. We're going to have less expectations of one another. If we can lower that desire and you can lower the standards that you have to live up to, ultimately you're lowering the potential for shame. Paul summarizes their teaching as do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. And spiritual communities across every branch of faith have tried this philosophy. Pretty much anybody who's wanted something bad enough for long enough and been unable to get it has eventually decided that the problem is not with myself and my inability to get the thing I want. The problem is actually with the thing I want. That way it's not my fault. There's no shame for me not being able to get it. In fact, if the thing is bad, then I'm actually better than all the people who have the thing that I want that I can't get. So it actually increases pride instead of increasing shame. It's a very common tactic. But here's the rub. Humans, like you and I, are eternally wanting creatures, and we have truly insatiable desires. For example, who here can tell me what's better than one Oreo? (laughs) It's not rhetorical. Go ahead. A box of Oreos, a whole box of Oreos. 20 Oreos is always better than one Oreo. 50 is even better if you can handle it. Depends on your Oreo tolerance. Now, the problem is, I don't know what your experience has been like, but at a certain point, our stomachs are going to inform us that our desire for 50 Oreos may not be as feasible as it initially appears, right? Worst case scenario, the result may be so bad that you lose your taste for Oreos in the long run. What you're not going to lose your taste for, however, is what you were really desiring all along, and that's pleasure. Oreos give you pleasure. And the evidence that you really wanted pleasure all along is the fact that you stopped eating Oreos when they stopped giving you pleasure. If you really wanted the Oreos, you would never stop. But you stop as soon as the pleasure stops. We have never tasted too much pleasure, ever. As soon as we find something that gives us a drop of pleasure, we will suck it dry. If you find a song that you like, you will listen to it on repeat until you're sick of it. If you find a food that you like, you'll eat it until you're tired of it. If you find a person that you like, if they'll let you, important distinction, you'll hang out with them until you're sick of them or they're sick of you. Some people incorrectly label this process as marriage. (laughs) I know I'm meddling now. I can hear a lot of you already drafting emails to PJ telling him not to let the intern preach again. Stay with me, though. You see, our desire for pleasure is the key to both understanding this text and to understanding shame. Shame is the result of being weighed against the desires of someone you value and being found wanting. But everyone around you has infinite desires, and your capacity to live up to their desires is finite. 
So all the relationships that you have will forever be teetering on the brink of shame as you and the other person take turns failing to live up to one another's standards. You see, the more relationships are built on and driven by our desire to be fulfilled by the other person and to receive good from the other person, the more shame is going to be a part of our relationships. You will initiate and you'll pull back based on whether the other person is giving you what you want. If they relate to you the way that you want to, you'll engage, move forward. If they don't give you what you want, you'll pull back. We train each other with shame. We set up our desires as the standard for the other person's behavior. Shame is the result of being weighed against the desires of someone you value and being found wanting. And because we treat others that way, we assume others are treating us that way. And it's largely true. So when we don't get the engagement from someone else that we want, we begin to feel shame welling up. Is it me? Is it something I did? Is it something I said or I didn't say? We have valued the other person and their desires so highly that we've made it the standard for our shame, whether it's a moral issue or not. You may have done nothing wrong. You may have only violated their personal relational preferences. There should be no shame in that. But in my experience, from what I see and, and what I feel, our shame for not meeting other people's relational expectations is the majority of our collective relational shame that we deal with. <clears throat> and before you think that I'm suggesting that the standard to avoiding shame is therefore relational disconnection, I have more bad news for you. Because the person whose infinite desires you will value most is yourself. And you, like other people, have infinite desires and a finite ability to satisfy your own desires. Even though the human soul is perpetually and naturally focused on itself, we still seek out a near unending stream of things outside of ourselves to find satisfaction in. The irony of selfishness is that the more we focus on ourself, the more crystal clear the reality becomes that we are not enough for ourselves. We're not enough for our jobs, for our friends, our relationships, our family, but most painfully, for selfish individuals, we're not enough for ourselves. And that's why your shame gnaws at the edge of your thoughts every night you have the slightest trouble falling asleep. That's why the food or the drink, the video games, the TV, the alcohol, the internet pornography, the online shopping, the online gambling, whatever it is, anything looks better compared to spending even 30 seconds alone with your shame at night. About this very thing, the Puritan author John Flavel wrote, we are naturally prone to flee from ourselves, and we desire to converse with our own hearts as seldom and as little as possible. There's a lurking suspicion in our minds that all is not right there. That if we were to search ourselves very closely, we would discover something that would be painful to us, and this tempts us to hate self-examination. The downside of all of those vices that we went to in order to get a momentary distraction from or reprieve from our shame is that compared with the distractions and the pleasures of the morning after, those things are significantly less desirable even possibly to the point of being shameful themselves. And so the very things that we went to to rescue us from our shame end up piling on top of our shame more and more shame. No matter what we do, we can't escape it. Maybe it's not even eight hours later. Maybe it's just eight minutes later. All of us experience this shame. All of us experience this brokenness. But in this commonality of brokenness, it's not surprising that we also see a commonality of coping strategies. Humans, in general, tend to favor three strategies for dealing with shame. First off, we will try to prevent shame. Secondly, if that fails, we'll try to deny our shame. And thirdly, if both of the first two fail, we will 
eventually embrace our shame. So I want to look at each one individually. First off, preventing shame. This is a strategy that the Greek philosophers were essentially trying. If you live strictly enough and have enough discipline, you can avoid shame in the future. It's not really a good strategy for coping with shame in the past, but if you can avoid piling on the future, that's better, right? Now, this, in our culture today, this particular strategy, when stated outright, is not very popular. We have plenty of things to fulfill our desires around us, and so the idea of rejecting those things is not, um, not attractive to us. In the modern sense, what has replaced that philosophy is essentially the pursuit of success. Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. Not because those things are bad, but because success, like all gods, requires sacrifice. You want the body? You want the sports record? You want the scholarship? You want to avoid the shame of not measuring up to your own standards? Then for the love of everything you love, stay away from carbs. (laughs) I'm speaking to myself there because I got off the keto diet recently. But seriously, today, Greek Stoic philosophy has been replaced by a hyper-focus on achievement. Whether it's relational or political or vocational, what have you, don't take pleasure in lesser things so that you can take pleasure in the better things, which is success. About these things, Paul says in our text, these have an indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, that's neglect of the body, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Your desire will always be for more success than you are humanly capable of having. Your desires are infinite, after all, and your ability to achieve your desires is finite. Remember, shame is the result of being weighed by the desires of someone you value, even and especially yourself, and being found wanting. You and I will still be there after our success peaks. We will still be there after our ability to get what we want has run out. And we all know what that looks like. It looks like the 40-year-old man who can't let go of his high school football record. Or it looks like the 50-year-old woman who's still living for her college reunion. We all know the signs, the telltale signs of someone who is trying to deny their shame, and it's not pretty. Everyone recognizes what shame is. Everyone feels shame. And prevention doesn't always work out. So what if that doesn't work then? The second thing we'll go to is denying it. And we actually already somewhat touched on what denial looks like. It's essentially hedonism. It's basically the idea that um, what I want is completely justifiable and I'm going to reject anyone who tells me other than what I want. We can see the most extreme version of this on social media today. If you search the hashtag ShoutYourAbortion, the hashtag is a place for women to share the stories of how proud they are of their decisions to kill their children. It's not a tactic of rational engagement. It's just closing our ears and shouting louder. But once we've elevated our desires as the standard for what is right for us, once we've elevated our desires to be the standard of whether or not we feel shame, as long as we're living up to those desires, there's no shame to be had. So why not tweet about it? In fact, if you tweet about it, you might actually be able to find other people who have the same desires as you and handle their desires the same way. Then you can value them as your community. And now your desires and how you achieve your desires and your community's desires and how they achieve their desires, they're in unison with each other. There's no dissonance between you and your community, so there's no shame to be had. All you have to do to avoid shame during the daytime is to devalue anyone who disagrees with you. However, this is ultimately not going to solve our problem. 
Because even if everyone around us completely agrees with what we want and how we get what we want, we're still not going to be enough to satisfy the one person that we are most concerned with. We saw in preventing already that we can't prevent our own shame because we can't live up to our own standards. The same is true with denying shame. We simply can't be enough for ourselves. And I know that this is not encouraging by today's standards. For example, the entertainment industry knows what you want, what we all want, and it's selling it to us hand over fist. You're good, you're perfect, you're enough for yourself. You're sufficient. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. But if that were really true, it wouldn't need to be said so much. If you and I were really perfect, we wouldn't need to be reminded of it. If you and I were sufficient for ourselves, we would lack nothing, especially someone to tell us that we're sufficient for ourselves. If it were true, we wouldn't hate spending time alone even 30 seconds without our smartphones. So, when we accept that truth, we're left with two conflicting realities. The doctrine that we should be enough for ourselves and that we should meet our own desires, but the conviction, the painful reality that we're not. And those two things are in conflict with one another. Remember, shame is the result of being weighed by the desires of someone you value, including yourself, and being found wanting. So the strategy that we went to for relief for our shame, once again, has piled on. So you can't escape shame, not by prevention and not by denial. So what's left except to embrace it? Now, many people have tried this strategy, and what I've seen from others who take this approach is unilaterally, unilaterally despair, occasionally culminating in suicide. Last week, Time Magazine released an article titled, More Millennials Are Dying Deaths of Despair. That is death from overdose or from suicide. Between 2017 and 2007, drug-related deaths increased by 108% among adults aged 18 to 34, while alcohol-related deaths increased by 69% and suicides increased by 35%, according to the CDC. Altogether, about 36,000 millennials died deaths of despair in 2017 alone. It's true that leaning into the shame will in some sense get you briefly attention or even compassion, but both of those things are lousy substitutes for what we really want, which is love. It's like trying to put milk in a gas tank. You can't survive in that environment for long, much less function in it. And when I was a youth pastor, I saw um, teens and even young children take this approach. Once they had leaned into the identity of being found perpetually wanting, there was no comfort that they could accept from me. The deficit that was created in their hearts by their own shame was greater than the love it would take than the love that I had in my own heart to overcome that deficit. They couldn't accept any comfort from me. And if you are in a position of loving someone who's in that place, odds are you're sharing in shame with them because your love for that person has been weighed against the bottomless pit of their own desires and it's been found wanting. The bottomless pit of human desire declares the exclusive satisfaction that is found in Christ alone whether we fill it with him or not. So what do you do with your shame? We all have it. Now that we've looked at the three ways that people tend to handle shame naturally, let's ask what does a Christian do with their shame? Shame is the result of being judged or weighed by the desires 
the expectations or the standards of someone you value and being found wanting. And the question posed by Paul in our passage today is which standard will you submit to being judged by, Christ's or man's? And I would like to take a moment and suggest that whatever you choose, you don't pick both. Either one is enough on its own to crush you. And I know that's not a convincing argument for one or the other, but if you have the choice between being crushed and double crushed, again, it's better not to pile on, right? But I do want to be clear that the, the reality is we're not just picking between two equal things, we're picking between the reality and the falsehood. Man does not have the ability to set the standard of shame for himself. If we could do that, we would have lived up to our shame and gotten rid of it by now. And there's never been a person alive who's ever done that apart from Jesus Christ. Anyone who claims to have gotten rid of their shame and acts consistently with that claim is institutionalized and labeled a sociopath. At the very least, they're arrested for public nudity. Because ever since the fall, we are biblically and thankfully legally mandated to wear the evidence of our shame with us everywhere we go. We're all wearing the evidence of our shame right now. In fact, Sunday's the day that we dress up in our nicest shame evidences, and we go to church and admire one another's shame evidences. And can you imagine how embarrassing it would be if you wore the wrong kind of shame evidence to church? Like if you wore a white shame evidence after that made-up holiday in the fall? That would just be awkward. This is a small example, a small one, of ways that we submit to both. We took God's standard that nakedness should be clothed, and we wrapped that standard in our standards, that it should be clothed in certain ways based on the time of year or the formality of the occasion. Paul's charge to Christians in this passage, especially in verses 8 through 10 and 16 through 22, is to reject man's made-up standards of what is or is not shameful and embrace God's standards. Man's standards, Paul said, are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So if the fact that man's standards are neither real nor helpful is not enough to convince you to abandon them, what about the fact that there is no atonement to be had for failing to live up to the standards of men? There's no Messiah to save you from your shortcomings in the eyes of other men. There's no permanent forgiveness to be had, even if you manage to live up to one expectation of one person or make up for one thing wrong you did against one person. There is an infinite stream of more desires waiting right behind that one, and there's another person behind him. And lastly, of course, you yourself and your own desires are behind both of those people. There is no forgiveness according to man's standards. That's why the first step for any Christian who would be free from their shame has to be that we let Christ define it. That is the first step. If you would deal with your shame as a Christian, you would let Christ define it. And the second step comes directly from it. We let Christ define our shame so that we can learn the magnitude of grace. God's standards are more strict than man's standards. But God's standards come with an offer of full atonement. Read this with me in verse 13. Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There is a lot of good news here, so I want to take it one line at a time. First line, you who were dead in your trespasses. That's God's definition of your shame. God made alive together with him having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. 
have you guys seen the records of debt in the Old Testament? They are meticulous. They are so meticulous that I don't have time to go into them right now. God is not a levier of vague charges against those who offend him, and you and I are like him in that way. We know every way that we have failed to live up to our own standards. We know every way that someone has wronged us. As the saying goes, you are your own worst critic. We don't sin against ourselves or against others in broad categories. We sin specifically. Big sins, little sins, not so bad sins, very bad sins, sins against ourselves and against other people. We know everything. It's an itemized record of debt against ourselves. Why do we think that sinning against an omniscient being would be any easier? Why do we think that if we sin against an omniscient being, we're going to get off easy when we can't even sin against ourselves, finite beings, and get off easy? The record of debt is itemized. Every single thing stands against us, and one line item would be enough to separate us from God for all of eternity. Why does this matter? Because grace is meticulous. You would not want God to count sins vaguely. If someone sinned against you, and they offered you a general I'm sorry, it would not be sufficient. Your sense of justice won't allow for that, so why would you want the God of the universe to be any less just than you are? For example, if a man commits genocide and he kills 10,000 people, he is not guilty on one vague charge of murder. He's guilty on 10,000 charges of murder. That's how justice works. Justice piles on. Praise God, so does grace. You and I don't naturally understand how grace works, but we do naturally have a better understanding of shame. The only way to gain perspective on the magnitude of grace is to gain perspective on our shame. That's why Jesus said, he who has been forgiven much forgives much. Crippling insecurity and self-doubt is the result of applying vague and nebulous grace to a meticulous record of debt. You and I will forever be wondering, was it enough unless we can look at the record and see after every single line item, paid in full, stamped in red. After all, it is a record of legal demands. So God looked carefully at every single item of your record of debt and one at a time, meticulously, irrevocably, legally, canceled them by nailing it to the cross. It's a death metaphor because it's permanent. Things that get nailed to crosses stay dead if they're not the Son of God. And speaking of him, let me show you this in Luke chapter 7. Jesus has gone to eat lunch with a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were the Jewish versions of the Greek philosopher. They were men who thought they could live strictly enough and with enough self-discipline to avoid shame. So you've got the holiest kind of person that you can be by man's standards, and you've got the Son of God eating lunch together, and a prostitute walks in. And the prostitute pulls out a bottle of the most valuable and expensive perfume you've ever imagined in your life. This bottle of perfume is worth a year's wages. And she uncorks the bottle she gets down on her knees and she's weeping and she pours the whole bottle out on the feet of Christ and then she takes her hair and lets it down and she dries off his feet with her hair it's the most intimate display of love you can possibly imagine and it is deeply inappropriate it is shameful according to every standard of men and the Pharisee is indignant at the uncleanliness of it all so Jesus looks at him and says Simon I have something to tell you. And Simon says, say it, teacher. Jesus says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which do you think will love him more? 
Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the moment I entered, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with priceless ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Did you hear the meticulousness of the forgiveness? Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. It's meticulous grace. Shame shows us the magnitude of grace. But we cannot stop there. Just like this woman, the final and third thing that you and I must do if we would deal with our shames as Christians is we must take it to Jesus. This woman was not going to Jesus for forgiveness. She was going to Jesus because of forgiveness. Grace is not the end point of dealing with your shame. Christ is. Christ is not a means to forgiveness. Forgiveness is a means to Christ. We commit a great idolatry when we reverse that order. A man who would have Christ for the sake of forgiveness will have neither. He who would have grace to gain access to Christ will have more of both than he can enjoy in 10 million eternities. So drink as deeply of grace as you can in order that you can drink even more deeply of Christ. Grace is your invitation to take the bottle of your desires and empty it out completely at the feet of Jesus and find every one of them eternally satisfied. There is, however, a concern that I have here. There's something I'm afraid that could be a check in your mind like it has been in mine and make you feel that all of grace is still not available to you all of the time. And it comes from divine and inspired scripture. In Romans 6, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Always a tactful one, Paul. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now you present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Did you see it? I've prayed for weeks that this would be clear for you to see. Just as, so now. Just as, in the same way as, by the same manner that you were enslaved to sin, so now you have become slaves to righteousness. What was it about sin that enslaved us so? We wanted it. We wanted it more than anything. We were all little Esau's by nature, trading our birthrights for a bowl of soup over and over and over again. We want the sin. That's what was so captivating. Our desires were our chains, and they were chained to sin until we were purchased. Today, if you long for grace, in order that you may have sin without punishment, 
I can't offer you any comfort. Your chains are still ultimately anchored to sin. There's no comfort except in the fact that I worship both the creator and the changer of hearts. Plead with him for a new one if yours betrays you with his desires. But, brothers and sisters, if you long for grace that you may have more of Christ, I have the best news for you. Your chains have been anchored to a new foundation, which is Jesus Christ. And we serve a God who wants nothing more, other things in addition to, but nothing more, than to fully satisfy you in Jesus Christ for all of eternity. Nothing but an unending feast of grace and love in Jesus Christ. The command of the Holy Spirit is to taste and see that the Lord is good. And God is not a Greek Stoic philosopher. He is, in a perfect and sinless way, very hedonistic. He does not intend that you would taste and then leave off for fear of overindulging. He's not worried that you would spoil your appetite for pleasure by having too much of it. He intends that you would drink of Christ until you can't hold anymore that you would look at Christ until you go blind and then ask for restored sight to look again. He intends that you would grab hold of Christ and refuse to let go until he blesses you. And the blessing is you get to keep holding on. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And once you have started drinking, do not stop. That is the gospel. It is the antithesis of the false teachers in Colossae who would say, do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. Rather, the gospel is do not waste those desires on lesser pleasures. Find them all satisfied in Christ. The solution to stopping indulgence of the flesh is not a white-knuckled abstinence. It is not forcing yourself to stop wanting because you can't stop wanting. You are made to want. Your highest goal and reason for existing is to want. The problem is not your wanting. It's the thing that you want. Anyone who sells you Christianity for the sake of avoiding punishment from God, they tell you Christianity is abstinence to avoid going to hell. That is someone who is selling you idolatry of pleasure apart from Jesus Christ. It's a message of don't enjoy sinful things because if you do, you won't get to heaven. It's caution for sinning against pleasure rather than sinning against God. That's not Christianity, that's paganism. The gospel is not at its core abstinence. It is indulgence in the better thing. And that's why, moving into the start of chapter 3, Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. If it has anything to do with Christ, if it gets me closer to Christ, I want that. That's the goal. It's true that you and I are not enough for ourselves. We are not enough to live up to our desires, and we were never meant to be. I know that this sounds bad, and if I stopped there with that sentence alone, it would be the worst news, but I won't stop there, so it's going to be the best news. The best news is that you and I, while we were not designed to be enough for ourselves, we were meant to reflect the most worthy thing that's ever been. And one of the many amazing things about the one that we were designed to love is that he's not content that we would stay as a mere observer or reflector of his image only. He has promised to shape us into a true living and breathing likeness. And I don't mean a fancy sculpture, I mean a son. The paradox of grace is that in abandoning our pursuit of what we want most, which is to be adored, and focusing all of our energy on adoring the one who is worthy of adoration, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next into the thing we admire. Christ gives us his righteousness 
his beauty, his worthiness. He gives us both his love and his right to be loved. He takes our faulty righteousness. Do not misunderstand me. He doesn't fix it up. He takes it away and burns it. And he gives us something better in its place, the imperishable, unending righteousness and perfection and worthiness of Christ. All you have to do to have that, to lay hold of that, is to look to him and love what you see. If you can do that, then you can call to mind the precise record of your debt and all of its legal demands and apply this passage to every single one. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And this one, and this one, and this one. And once you have applied all the grace that you could ever want or need, then indulge yourself deeply in Christ. Let's pray. King Jesus, we are humbled by the magnitude of your meticulous grace. We are so undeserving, and in you, we have been made so worthy. You love us beyond our wildest dreams, and because we have been forgiven much, you have enabled us to love you much. So I pray that you would not, in any sense, cease to, to fill and satisfy us with yourself, and I pray that you would continue to let everything else but you be unsatisfactory. It is a mercy that you do that. And I ask these things in your splendid and worthy name. Amen.